As we've been looking throughout the story of the whole Bible at the idea of justice um, and what, what it means as we listen to different voices from the Bible and as we maybe expand our understanding of justice being more than just zapping people for breaking rules, uh, but how the Bible sees a, a bigger and deeper and maybe richer sense of what justice is. So after having spent some time last time focused in particular in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, we spent a lot of time in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, and it's parallel in Luke, uh, where are we headed today? So we are staying in Matthew because Jesus has a lot to say about justice, and so much so that we are having a whole other week just in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, so we are going to start with Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 15, in a uh, little side note, this is one of the few biblical references in the ELCA model constitution. Yeah, there, there's something fun to know. There's not a whole yeah. lot of places in model constitutions that have Bible references, but here's one. <laughs> yep. It's also, also while we're having random side notes about Bible passages, one of the few places in the Gospels where Jesus uses a word that gets translated church. Because honestly, Jesus, like, who's a Jewish rabbi and like would have gathered at his religious gathering at a synagogue, it's rare for Jesus to talk about an institution that doesn't exist until after his resurrection. And we'll have to talk about that in a minute. Because there are times when he probably really does mean church and he's looking forward. And here, the word uh, is literally assembly that eventually comes to mean like church, but it could be just a generic kind of assembly. Or Jesus could be looking into the future. When you guys do a thing called church, here's how to do it. That's possible. Alright, so now that we've talked around (laughs) around the scripture for a while, let's read it. So, this is from the New International Version. If a brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And then it it goes on to talk about, you know, the things like what you bind on earth, bound in heaven, whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven, etc., etc., etc. And the next, very next conversation Jesus has is about... Uh, when Peter approaches him about how often I should forgive somebody. So what's interesting to me is even though like the word justice doesn't appear here, this does have everything to do with repairing broken relationships and repairing when someone has sort of broken the boundaries of, it doesn't even necessarily have to be um, uh, that there's physical violence, but if someone has sinned against you, what do we do with that? And to me it feels like in our whole series we've been talking about that justice is Bigger than, deeper than just criminal codes Mm -hmm. of, have you committed a crime, Uh, what do we do about it, or who should punish you? But 
how do we deal with when anytime there's a broken relationship between us, whether or not that's a criminal offense or not, it's sort of separate. It's like, how, how do we deal with when relationship is broken and that justice is about putting those things right? Yeah, one of my favorite verses in here is the last one that I actually read, which is, you know, if he refuses to listen to even the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Because, like, automatically we usually go, oh, yeah, we like, those are terrible people. Let's not um, treat them well. But then if you think about what Jesus actually does in relationship with tax collectors and pagans is he eats with them. Right. He befriends them. Right. He is in relationship with them. Like one of his disciples, was it Matthew? Yeah. Who was a tax collector. Right. So, you know, the, this isn't just, oh, yes, cut off all relationship with this person. It's, no, you're still in relationship with and this it's a, person. it's maybe a change of expectation. If there's someone who's a part of the community, there's this mutual accountability of, we assume we expect certain things of them. And mm-hmm. if someone consistently says, I refuse to accept the wisdom of the wider community, you don't stop loving them. But, okay, if you're not going to live within the boundaries of the community, we'll treat you like someone we're reaching out to now. But with the thought of we want you to accept the mutual accountability of how we love each other, how we take care of each other, and that in this instance, harming somebody else is not okay. That if you can't see that what you've done has harmed somebody and everybody else sees it, then we got to treat you like, okay, well, clearly you're not seeing it on the same wavelength. We're going to keep reaching out to you, but clearly you're, you're not seeing things the way we do. It's interesting, too, that, there's, that the focus seems to be on how do you restore relationship on both sides. That if you're the one who's wronged... Um, you're, Jesus doesn't say, then you get to hold a grudge and say, well, maybe I'll forgive them if they come crawling back to me. Jesus instructs, if you've been the one who's wrong, okay, you're allowed to have the courage to go and have a conversation with the person. Again, presuming that it, it's safe to do so. Um, but And then in the very, very next uh, conversation when Jesus gets to have this conversation about forgiveness with Peter, Jesus puts, if, you're, if you've sinned against somebody, seek forgiveness from them. It, it's interesting to me that Jesus challenges no matter which side of the equation you're on. You're for the one who's wronged somebody else and you realize it, or someone else has wronged you and you've got to deal with it. The, the, the approach Jesus recommends is we've got to deal with this. We don't just bury it. We don't forget it. We don't cover it up. We don't let the institution cover it up. We've got to deal with it. Uh, and, you know, infections don't get better unless they're given uh, air to, <laughs> to, uh, to dry out, I guess. And while, you know, you mentioned that this is part of the ELCA's... Uh, model Constitution. Model Constitution, mm-hmm. yes. Polity, I don't understand. But, you know, this is the model of how the church is supposed to handle these things. Yeah. But I know as a, myself as a pastor, and I'm not going to speak for you all, I don't see this happening in mm. the church very often. Mm-hmm. Is that the case for you all? Is, I think sometimes it's hard to tell because the, the if, thing, if this model is working well, the first couple of steps should never be visible except this for the true. people yes. who are involved. And... I guess, how would you know if this model is not being practiced? I guess part of how you'd know is if, like, everybody knows everybody's business publicly when they shouldn't, uh, yeah. and I guess that's possible. Um, it seems to me like maybe what I could say is I don't know that this model is so deeply ingrained that we automatically assume that's how we'll handle things. Yeah, yeah We're more used to, yeah, someone will probably gossip or gripe about it mm-hmm. to some third party first, or people will be all over social media, it'll all be over Facebook or whatever, rather than... 
If you've got an issue, deal with it individually if you can. And if not, that, and like sometimes that's where it breaks down, that nobody is willing to treat the, the community called church as a group that can speak authoritatively and mm-hmm. say, no, this way of treating other people is unacceptable. Um, and we have to say no to that for the sake of the well-being of others who are potential victims. I think, I guess that's where I see it. It's like, you know, somebody hurts me, mm-hmm. then I have to go and complain to a friend over here. You know, whether yeah. it's on social media or not, I go and complain to somebody over here, and then, you know, then they pull in some friends, and then sides are, are taken, and then mm-hmm. now everybody's like, well, I'm on Erica's side, or I'm on, you know, so-and-so mm-hmm. side, and mm-hmm. then it just, it breaks down, rather than me just going to the person that hurt me and saying, you know what, that hurt. You know, mm-hmm. what you said, what you did, whatever it was, that hurt, and I need you to know that, mm-hmm. you know. And I think this may get even deeper to, like, we may be leaving the realm of justice and more like our inner psychology about, like, how it's scary for anybody to admit they've messed up. Mm -hmm. And because so much of our wider culture teaches that we should always be nice to everybody and we should never have anything unpleasant to say, that if someone has hurt you, we're sort of taught, don't mention it, don't talk about it, because that's not nice. Um, which suggests to me that, like, there's an important line out of the musical Into the Woods that stays with me on a bunch of subjects, and it's that nice is different than good. Um, And, like, that's an important distinction I think maybe the church needs to recover, that the goal is not simply for things to be nice, but for things to be deeply good. And good good is closer to justice, about we're in right relationship, Mm -hmm. not like, oh, if I mention that so-and-so said something that really upset me... um, or did something that hurt me or something like that, to be able to acknowledge it allows us to move on. If I don't talk about it, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen to somebody Mm -hmm. else. And maybe there's a deeper trust if I trust that our relationship is strong enough that I can say, this thing that happened, this hurt me, or this was sin against me, or something like that. Um, It's the people that you're afraid saying something like that will break the relationship that we we, we clam up about. As, as this has to do with our, our broader series topic of, of justice, though, I think it's interesting that Jesus seems to be much less interested in punishment than we might expect. Yeah. You know, like, there, there are consequences, eventually, if someone doesn't listen. Uh, and again, this is not talking about criminal justice, obviously. There's life within the Christian community here. Um, but the, Jesus doesn't mete out a series of uh, punishments or, or consequences. L- like when we spend our time talking about in the Torah, we talk about there are crimes where th- like it's spelled out. Mm-hmm. If someone does this, you stone them to death. If so-and-so does this, you, you know, and even the law of retaliation, here's how much revenge you're allowed to take, you know. And Jesus doesn't approach any of this from that vantage point of what will make things right is a certain amount of suffering, but more like if somebody doesn't get it, if somebody isn't correctable, and you bring it to the wider pressure of the whole community, at some point, the worst you can do is say, well, then you're not a part of this community because you've chosen to remove yourself from it, but we're not going to come burn your house down or attack you or take your stuff. We we don't do things that way. And so whatever justice is, it seems like at least within this passage, Jesus assumes that justice looks a lot more like restoring relationship. And what does it take to restore relationship rather than um, have you suffered enough that I can consider you've paid your debt? Like, there's no language of have you paid your debt to mm-hmm. society. That's not a way Jesus seems to think here. Again, it's not that there's never a place for that, but it's interesting that as, as Jesus talks about how, how the community lives on, he's more interested in the well-being of the community and of the, the individuals who are sinned against rather than a certain amount of uh, time spent in prison or money collected or some other way of paying a debt like that. Are there other things in this particular passage that you think are worth spending a moment on? I, I'm ready for the next one. Okay. Yeah. I would just say it's worth us leaving the, a bookmarker in here with the idea that 
whatever justice means in the biggest picture includes restoring, and mm-hmm. sometimes that's a language that you'll hear folks talk about, restorative justice being, you know, like, and, and again, sometimes you'll hear this even in conversation about criminal justice, that if somebody, um, you know, uh, harms another person, um, folks who are, are advocates of what's called restorative justice will point out just because somebody else spends a certain amount of time in a prison cell doesn't necessarily make me whole. That, that doesn't put things right with me, especially if it's now they hate my guts and never want to talk to me again and are never able to own the, the, the here's what I did wrong to you, I sinned against you. Restorative justice voices are ones who say, um, in the end, the goal of justice overall is how do we repair damage done to those who are wronged, and that in a lot of ways it's got to be focused on what does the victim think they need to, in order to be well again, to be whole again. And I was just listening to somebody on the radio the other day, and they were talking about restorative justice even in criminal contexts, where like if somebody goes to jail, that doesn't really make me whole for if you've, if you've harmed me or something. If you robbed from me, yes, I should be able to get my money back. Um, but if there's other violence done against me, um, I may not feel comfortable being around you uh, immediately, but the, the hope is at some point I need to know that you get how you've hurt me. Um, and if I'm the one who's done wrong, I need to, um, the, the goal has is, is got to be how do we make me into a person that doesn't harm other people and can own and take responsibility. And if so much of our system is just set up for how much jail time will you do? And if you're the, the advocate, you're the attorney for the, the, the criminal who's accused, your goal is not really, we want the truth to come out, we want to get as minimal jail time for our client because that's how we see things. And none of that is really about restoring. It's interesting to me that Jesus has this deeper sense even there. All right, we ready to turn to uh, Matthew 20 maybe? Would that be yeah. okay? Yeah. Okay. Is there someone who feels like they'd be willing to give us a short version of the story, whether you read it out loud or give us the Reader's Digest version? So, Matthew 20 is the laborers in the vineyard, and basically what it is, um, is Jesus is telling this parable about the kingdom of heaven and about a landowner who needs people to work in his vineyard. Mm -hmm. And so, people come by in the morning, and he hires them uh, for the daily wage, and they send them out to work. And then people come three hours later at nine o'clock, and he hires them and sends them out to work. And people come at noon, and he hires them, and they send them out to go to work, and then like, with an hour left in the working day, there's another group that comes out, and he hires them and sends them out to work. And then, the end of the day comes, they all line up to receive their pay, and they all e- receive equal pay. Mm-hmm. Which is outlandish to the ones that started at the beginning of the day, because they're like, well, you know, you said that you would pay us this. Mm-hmm. But, in in to go back, he starts with the folks that started at the end of the day with the payments. Mm-hmm. And they're receiving the full daily wage. Mm-hmm. And so by the time he gets to the folks that started at the beginning of the day, they're like, well, shoot, these guys that worked only an hour got a full daily wage. Well, then we should be getting, you know, yeah. ten times as much or whatever. And by the time the, the landowner gets to them, they get a full daily wage. And they're like, oh, time out here. What's going on? Mm-hmm. These guys only worked for an hour in your vineyard. And you gave them the full daily wage, and we were there all day, and we're getting the same pay. Mm-hmm. And the and the um, the owner of the vineyard basically says, "That's what you agreed to." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's up to me to what I want to pay folks for mm-hmm. how much they worked, and mm-hmm. if I want to pay the folks that worked an hour a full daily wage, that's my prerogative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of plot points that like make this seem unlikely in real life, but are necessary for the story to work the way it mm-hmm. does. And part of it is at the beginning, yeah, the people who were hired first, the 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 Greek of it says they're paid a denarius, and a lot of our English translations will just say the usual daily wage. Because yeah, if you were a day laborer, picture like this is minimum wage, mm-hmm. a coin that would have been the amount you'd get paid for a day's work is a denarius. And um, 
everybody else that he hires partway through the day, he says, go and work on my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. And that, I mean, there, there's something that is worth noting about that. Because one, it's kind of left ambiguous. It's like, huh, I wonder what that will turn out to mean at the end. But also, it's worth noting that, again, in the in the Greek New Testament, in, in um, Koine Greek, the word right and the word just are the same. The same word for justice is the same word for righteousness. So even though English sort of separates those as, and we treat righteousness as sort of like this personal piety, holiness kind of thing, and justice is something different. In the Greek mindset, uh, the word is dikaios, and it, it means the same thing. Righteous justice is the same concept. So you could just as accurately translate the, the landowner says, I will pay you whatever is just. And that seems to be the, the outrage at the end, is that the guys who were paid... Uh, who were hired first in the day and ended up paid the same. We're like, how can this be just? Because we worked more, we should get more. Um, and then at the end, of course, like you said, the landowner says, I gave you exactly what you agreed to, so our, our deal is square here. I, and he says, hey, you know, am I not allowed to do what, what I want with what's, what's mine? And then the last line, uh, uh, some, some translations say, um, or are you envious because I am generous? The, the Greek is a little more um, idiomatic. He goes, is your eye evil because I am good? Um, but the idea is like, are you, are you upset because I'm being good to somebody? Um, and that's really what it is in the end. It's the people who are paid for us are upset that, because uh, they're a complaint. They say, they admit they haven't, they haven't been cheated, but they say you've made us equal to them. And that's their, what they're upset about. Their whole view of the system is, how do we know that we're better? if you paid us all the same but you've, you've made them equal to us and they're upset about that and the landowner seems to think that's part of what justice looks like here and I, I, the reason I want to suggest this is not to say that um, it is fair for people who do less work to get less comp- or to get the same compensation I'm, I'm not making that, that necessarily the case but to say bigger context if, if these people are all working for what is established as the usual daily wage and we're talking like this is comparable to talking about minimum wage means in our culture mm-hmm. today if you don't get paid a full day's wage, and we're talking again, you pay, you get paid today for today's work, and then tomorrow, if if you work, you get you know, hired again. This is not people who have a steady job and are guaranteed employment tomorrow. For most of the peasants in this community, if you don't own your own land and you're working your own field, you're hired by somebody else for a day at a time, and that means if you don't work today, your kids don't eat tomorrow. I mean, like that's mm-hmm. that's the kind of world we're talking about in the kind of society. So th- I think part of the bigger picture is if. The people who are hanging around to the end don't get hired by anybody. Their kids go hungry tomorrow. Is it the kid's fault that dad did get hired? No, it's not their fault. It's not even the dad's fault. It's nobody's fault. It's there, it, there wasn't the labor to go around. And that part of what's going on in the story is the landowner realizes part of what's just is everybody should be able to get to eat. Everybody should be able to get to feed their kids. And that the landowner senses part of what his calling is to do is to make sure everybody in his community gets to eat. And if he can do that by paying people, who even who only worked an hour, enough that they can feed their kids, yeah, that's the right thing to do. That's what justice looks like. And in the big picture, it is not better for everybody all around if he holds on to a little bit more money for himself while other kids in the community starve. I think at least for me in my own life wrestling with this story there's a long period in my life when I didn't like this story at all um, and I think I brought a lot of baggage of assuming that everybody lived in the same kind of economic world that we do where people have steady jobs all the time and mm-hmm. that you have a refrigerator to put food in so if you didn't you know, make money today well there's food in the fridge or in the deep no wait a second this is a hand to mouth kind of society where you need to get paid today so your family eats tomorrow and it occurs to me oh that would that would dramatically change how I see the world if I live that way. 
I, I've also really struggled with this text at multiple points in my life. In particular, because I've heard this text be used poorly. Okay. Um, I definitely had a classmate in college who used this parable as a rationale of why people didn't need to be paid the same. Mm. um, Especially the line of something like... um, uh, where the landowner says something like, you know, didn't you agree to work for a, oh. and then the, whatever amount, is that, you know, if you get hired onto a company and you agreed to work for a certain amount, you shouldn't complain if you find out your coworker who does the exact same job makes more than you mm-hmm. because you agreed to work for the amount that you agreed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is a... Oh, poor way to read this text mm-hmm. um, because, you know, again, the, the landowner is saying, I will pay you whatever is right, mm-hmm. whatever is just. And I think that inequal pay for the same amount of work isn't right, isn't mm-hmm. just. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a poor way to use this parable. It's interesting to me, like, we, maybe collectively, church folk have a hard time with, like, what, what do we do with the parables of Jesus as, as a category, because on the one hand, they're not reducible to fables with like a single moral at the end, like Aesop's fables, mm-hmm. and they aren't primarily about morality in general. They're more about, they're, they're, they're intended to be something about what God is like or how God runs the universe. Um, and at least a, a, a helpful way to tell is when Jesus starts out saying something like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and Jesus, oh, this is how God runs the world. This is, this is what God's reign or God's kingdom is like. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is advocating that we do the same things that characters in the story do. Because, again, these are not primarily stories about us. But it, it does seem interesting that the, the language of what's right and what's just shows up in this, in this parable to me. And maybe that's where we get hung up. That Like, okay, wait a second, we're supposed to practice justice too. So what, what, are, what are we supposed to do in light of this parable? This is about God, but if it's also about what is right and what is just, what, is that, what does that mean for us? And to me it feels like, you can, you can try and make this parable primarily about God's allowed to do whatever God wants to do. I guess you could. And there are probably traditions that are more comfortable going that direction that would say, yes, every parable is all about the absolute unquestionable sovereignty of God. God can do whatever God wants, whether we think it's fair or not. To me, that doesn't seem like that's really what Jesus sort of centers this on, especially because at the end of the parable, Jesus gives this line that sort of is like a, a concluding line on it. The, the, the verse at the end of the story, verse 16, so the last will be first and the first will be last, which is sort of like this, Jesus says that a lot in the Gospels, um, but it's like this encapsulating sort of in God's way of doing things, the lowly are raised up and the, the high and mighty and the powerful are brought down quite, quite often. And Jesus doesn't seem, seem to think that's a perversion of justice, that whatever justice looks like is we break that old cycle of a handful of people who are on top who have all the good stuff and the people who are on the bottom through no fault of their own are on the, on the bottom. Um, and if that's keyed into what Jesus seems to think justice looks like, that we, don't, we just don't keep rebuilding that same structure and replacing who's on top again. It seems to me like the, a good bit of the Bible, especially the, the story of Israel in the Old Testament, is about God warning the people not to become a new version of Pharaoh's Egypt all over again, right? Where Pharaoh's on top and controls the resource and there are a bunch of slaves on the bottom. And that when the people are set free, God says, I don't want you to be like that. So I'm trying to create a new society where that doesn't happen again. And where there isn't this radical disconnect and that there are people 
who are insulated from the the sufferings of others because they're you know drinking their bowls of wine like Amos mm-hmm. criticized them for. And it seems like as we've gone through this whole series, we've talked about how so much of the story of Israel, so much of the Hebrew scriptures, is that like don't become that, don't become a version of Pharaoh's Egypt again, be this different. And the, there were rules and patterns in Israel's life, like jubilee year, like um, uh, debt forgiveness, um, like the uh, release of slaves and things like that that were meant to. Uh, prevent anybody from permanently being behind the eight ball and anybody from being so wealthy that they could sort of force other people out of their land as well. And that if Jesus grows up in that tradition, it should make sense that Jesus has that sense of what justice looks like as well. Instead of us going, well, we bring our 21st century's uh, understanding of what justice looks like and Jesus has to agree with that, maybe it's more like that Jesus would have inherited a, a Hebrew mindset being a Jewish rabbi in the first century and assumes a part of justice is you don't create a society where some people are doomed from birth because their parents, you know, were, were born in poverty, that now I'm doomed to that as well. Um, that Jesus rather envisions a world where God lowers the, the uh, proud and arrogant and lifts up the lowly, and that that's part of what God's vision of the good life is where we can be together, I think. There's one last detail I want to call attention to. If Go you're for willing. it. Okay. Go for it. So it's, it, it's, you, you mentioned this earlier, Erica, that the, the tension of the story only works if the people who were hired last get paid first and the other ones have to watch it. And it seems to me like this is not only important as a plot device, but that part of the way Jesus tells the story is deliberately to provoke this reaction, mm-hmm. right? Even though these are fictional people reacting. If Jesus told the story where the people who get paid first, who work first all day get paid first, they go off, they take their coin, and they, they have no know. idea. Right, right, right. But that part of what Jesus seems insistent on is pointing out not just that the landowner does his clever thing of paying everybody the same, but nobody finds out. But that part of what needs to happen is the people who are paid first have to be brought to this choice of, am I going to be upset that somebody else has enough to feed their kids? Or am I going to see that's part of what justice is? And that part of the transformation that needs to happen is not just the people who are hungry need to be able to be fed, but the people who got more or think they're entitled to more need to have this transformation of, wait a second, am, am I being envious just because somebody else is able to feed their kids? And the story isn't done yet unless both, I guess, sides of that situation have been dealt with. It's not just the people who are hungry have to be able to feed their kids, but the people who are entitled and have plenty and, oh, my kids are going to be fine, have to be brought to. It's good news when everybody's able to feed their kids and the story isn't done unless that that's happened okay thanks for indulging me let's move on so we got one more parable of matthew okay that we want to deal with and it's matthew 25 uh steve do you want to kind of give us the? I, i would love to i really would um the gist of Matthew 25 in this parable? Yeah, so at the end of Matthew 25, there's a parable that is sometimes called the judgment of the nations and sometimes it's called the sheep and the goats. And it's set up, uh, Jesus says, when the Son of Man, one of his favorite titles for himself, comes in glory and all the angels, he'll sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate the people like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he'll set the sheep on the, one, on the right hand and the goats at the left and he'll say to those who are at his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, because I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink, I was a stranger, foreigner, and you welcomed me, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you took care of me, I was uh, in prison and you visited me. And the righteous will say, what? <laughs> when was it that we did any of the, and they recite the same whole list, when did we do any of those things? And Jesus' response comes, 
truly I tell you, as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, or sometimes it's uh, rendered one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. And then he turns to the left, those at his left hand, and says, you who are accursed, depart from me because I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was, and he goes to the same list. I was thirsty and you didn't give me something to drink. And they say, what? Where were you that we missed out on this? And Jesus says, as truly as I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And on a cheery note, he ends, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there's that. There's that. This is, um, I think, one of Mother Teresa's favorite parables. Like, I think she used this and quoted it several times about uh, why she did what she did with, uh, in regards of the poor and the Mm -hmm, sick mm -hmm, and... mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, this is one of Mother Teresa's favorite parables. And I have to say, as, as someone coming out of the Lutheran tradition that is so insistent on you're saved by grace through faith apart from what you've done, mm-hmm. honest Lutherans have to, have, to do, have to deal with, huh, then what do I do with Matthew 25? Which sure sounds awfully close to the basis on which these people are judged has a lot to do with how did they treat the nobodies, the people who couldn't do anything in return for them, um, and not recognizing or recognizing that it was Jesus. It certainly is a paradox, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's a convenient answer for us. Now, I, I will also say, it seems also important, the Lutheran in me seems insistent on noting, that in the story, the way it's told, nobody realizes what they were doing, or nobody realizes nobody was trying to do it for points. That, like, when Jesus approaches the sheep and says, I was hungry and you gave me food, the sheep don't go, yes, we realize this is what you needed us to do in order to earn our spots in the afterlife. We're glad you recognize we are. We hope we've earned enough points and that we've made our, our spot in the, the good place instead of the bad place. Um... <laughs> That nobody says that. Instead, everybody is blessedly clueless about, wait, we didn't realize, we were just doing, in other words, we were doing what we thought justice was. We were taking care of the people around us. And I think that goes back, for me at least, to the landowner in the parable about the vineyard, Mm -hmm. is that here's this guy who has enough wealth that he can make sure his community is fed. Mm -hmm. But instead of hoarding that wealth and going, ooh, I can make some interest and then I'll be even richer, he he finds a way to make sure that that wealth goes back into his community, goes back into supporting the poor in his community to make sure that they're all fed. And so, you know, it's one of those things of, oh, I, I do have good health right now. Why wouldn't I, you know, I have a good, strong immune system you know, if there is a flu outbreak, I feel pretty safe because I have my flu my flu shot. And, you know, so why wouldn't I take care of those who do not have poor, who, who do not have good health? You know, it's it's sharing my type of wealth. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned as a Lutheran. Yeah. In the paradox, as a Wesleyan. Uh-huh. And the social justice background of, of John Wesley, sure. and especially dealing with the prisons of his time, like I think, and I can't completely prove this off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm guessing that this is probably a strong passage for a lot of his social justice sure. work, mm. uh, especially with the prisons. And it's something I've noticed um, within my faith tradition that we have politicized this. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the... The left, the progressive side, is really good with social justices and the conservative, traditional right side, whatever titles you want to put on. I hate titles, but, you know, um, we know that we're supposed, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, we're supposed to do that, but, Mm -hmm. you know, and they've just made this a a big political game. game. Um, 
But, you know, anytime I come across this passage, I, I just think back to Wesley and all the work that he did and, and starting schools and, and hospitals and prison ministry, and not just in his time in England, but even what the Methodist Church has done, you know, in, um, in his honor, you know, in his legacy throughout the years. You know, there are Methodist hospitals. Uh, I was just talking with a, a girlfriend of mine who is down in Texas, and there's a Methodist hospital there, and she has a two-year-old, and when she gave birth, uh, because she's a Methodist pastor, like, everything was taken care of because, you know, she went to the Methodist hospital as a Methodist pastor, and, um, which I've not had children, but I've been in the hospital. I know how expensive it can be. Um, I should have joined the Methodist church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then you'd have to have birth in the Methodist hospital, which there aren't a whole lot of those around here. Um, um, I'd find a way. That would still be cheaper. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it just, this for me, you know, I see Wesley all over, mm-hmm. you know, all over this passage. Sure. And it's something I try to live up to um, within my heritage of, of trying to myself do these things mm-hmm. and also encourage my folks to do them, mm-hmm. too. And not make it like, well, that's something that the left takes you. Right, right, right. It seems interesting to me, again, like that while the word justice doesn't show up in the passage, and while the Lutheran in me wants to, it says nobody earns their salvation by having done these things, that there's this still like, but the assumption is this is what right relation looks like. When you run mm-hmm. across somebody who is hungry, you don't stop to ask, but do, do you deserve food? There's a certain no. Human beings should get to eat. That, that's a thing. And we live in a world. That's a human right. Yeah, and, and there's this like, there's abundance in God's creation going back to Genesis. One of like God doesn't say I've only made enough for the best earners or for the smartest or the tallest of you. Um, only you who are tall enough to reach the fruit from the tree are allowed to eat. But instead, like oh, everybody gets to eat. And that it seems to me part of the, the vision that Jesus lifts up. What things matter in the end are taking care of whatever the need is in front of us. And that there there isn't like an asterisk or fine print of like, but it's only the people who are deserving and, and deserving as you, the giver of charity. See, it's interesting that this isn't a text really about charity then. This is about, justice is about like what we do for each other that we, we just do for each other without a sense of I'm pitying you or I get to look down on you. But we take care of the needs of one another. And it seems to me the other really important insight is that in doing this that we recognize Christ's presence in the other and that it's not sometimes we we Christians are good at like I'll be Jesus for you I'll be the one who takes care of you and the real reversal in all this is no it's I've discovered Jesus as the one who I I thought I was here to take care of and it turns out oh no there is is where I encounter God there's Christ that's something not only the Methodist tradition and and, uh, hopefully the Lutheran tradition but like uh, Roman Catholic mystic folks like not only Teresa but like Thomas Merton uh, now would say like there's really the important thing here is not just you have to do a number of good deeds to get in God's good graces but how do you want to encounter Christ he's promised to show up like in three places in the sacrament in the word of God and in the face of your neighbor so oh wait if I want to find Jesus I ought to look for the person who is most in need to me I think there's even a line of C.S. Lewis that next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest thing you are going to encounter. So, we've just spent time in Matthew's gospel, but there's mm-hmm. more to be said about what Jesus has to say about justice in other gospels. So, um, join us then next time. We're going to continue digging into Jesus and justice from other gospels uh, as we take a look here on Crazy Faith Talk. Thanks, everybody. Bye.
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.